Just before we start, our featured book this time is Emma Donoghue's Room, which does include references to abuse that some listeners might find upsetting. Hello, 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 and a very warm welcome to this, the first in a new series of the Graham Norton Book Club, an Audible original. This is a book club, and we are indeed all about books. Reading them, listening to them, talking about them, deciding if we like them, let's not deny it, and generally immersing ourselves in the loveliness that is literature. Joining me to take the plunge is, I am delighted to say, darling of The Guardian, BBC Radio 4, and more book festivals than you shake a stick at, Alex Clark. Hello. Hello, I've missed you. And I you. I you. <laughs> You're still en fête. You're still, there's no festival you don't go to, is there? I have had my little suitcase packed more often than I can say. I have got an absolute doyen now at making hotel room light bulbs and showers work. So just come to me if you need to know anything about life on the road. And a favourite author you've interviewed since I last spoke to you? Easy. Stanley Tucci. Oh, the Tooch. Can you imagine the Tooch Master? I mean, for a start, actually then convinced my family I had a job that they thought was worthwhile. You're the other leg of that particular (laughs) stool. Uh, And he was, you know, you have a fear, don't you? What if he's not terribly nice? It was absolutely lovely. Walked in looking spick span, more dapper than you can imagine. Engaged me in conversation about olives and had a beer. He was just marvellous. And then the audience... Loved him. Now all the listeners are going, why don't they have Stanley Tucci on? Oh, it's true. I've made this look like, well, well, we'll see. He he might show up. You never know. This is a shout out to the Tooch. Yeah. (laughs) All right, everybody. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. You can't have a book club without clubbers. And luckily, we have some of those. Yeah. Each time on the podcast, we have a book of the week that's been recommended by one of our intrepid crew of book club members. This time, it is Room by Emma Donoghue the best-selling story of a child who has spent his first five years locked in that eponymous spot with his ma. Here to discuss it are Varshini, who chose it for us, Gavern, Saima and Gabby. Hello, all. Hi. Hi, everyone. So now, we've got to catch up since last we spoke. So who's got a new job? Is it Gabby or Varshini? Oh, who's... that's me. You oh, know you... student discount. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm officially a lecturer in psychology. So, I mean, I feel like an adult. It's strange. I've only been there for a week. But it's going well. Okay. You know that thing about, like, you, you know, you're getting a policeman look young. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same for lecturers. <laughs> Thank you. And Zyma, now, since we last spoke to you, you've now become an MBE. Is that right? Oh, goodness. Yes. Yes, I have. I'd forgotten about that. Round of applause for that. Did you nearly forget about that? <laughs> <laughs> so did you get to go to the palace and everything? I did. I got to go to the palace and I got to meet Prince William and it was all very grand and very lovely. And I took my mother and I wore a hat and it was it was a lovely day. Fabulous. Oh, nice. did, you, did you buy the video? <laughs> it's on my list of things to do. <laughs> Excellent. Well, don't go anywhere. We'll be back later to discover your views on a room. Does that work? Not really. Anyway, uh, whether you were utterly captivated or if you were climbing the walls, all room-based, I thank you. After we've spoken to Emma Donoghue herself and after Alex has recommended three brilliant titles that all share a certain theme. And the theme this time is, Alex... Well, look, it does feel pretty topical at the minute, but I'm not sure there's a time when it isn't. It is 
tightening one's belt. It is what to do when faced with certain straightened circumstances. Um, However, these are not economics books. These are not finance books, because I think there are plenty of those around and I don't have the degree necessary to understand them. So they are novels that deal with people facing Hard Times. Hard Times would be a great title for a novel, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. Is that being used already? Mm. I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> well, I looked forward to hearing about those. But I am thinking, so far we've got imprisoned children and impending penury. I think perhaps we need someone to cheer us up. <gasps> I know the very man. On the ferry across the Orison between Denmark and Sweden, I passed the time staring out at the slate grey sea and studying my Kummerli and Fry Sud-Scandinavian map. Denmark looks like a plate that has been dropped onto a hard floor. It is fractured into a thousand pieces, forming deep bays and scorpion-tail peninsulas and seas within seas. The villages and towns sounded inviting. Eroscobing, Scareback, Holstbro, the intriguingly specific Middle Fart, and from dozens of them dotted red lines led out to cosily forlorn islands. I had a sudden strong urge to visit them all, There would never be enough time. There never is in life. There wasn't even time for a second cup of coffee. Always an antidote for depression. The soothing tones of the phenomenon that is travel writer, in fact, writer on virtually everything, Bill Bryson, whose latest investigation gave rise to the Audible original The Secret History of Christmas. I'll be talking to him about that, audiobooks in general, and why retirement is his new favourite pastime, later on in our Talking Book Slot. So, let us open up Room. It was published in 2010, was Emma Donoghue's seventh novel, and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. The story came to her in a rush, after she read about Austrian Joseph Fritzl, who had kept his daughter prisoner in a soundproofed room for 27 years, where she'd borne him seven children, three of whom were locked in there with her. Emma tried to imagine what life might be like for a child who had never known anything or anyone outside that space. The story is told entirely from the perspective of five-year-old Jack, who is very content with his life with Ma. He plays on rug, eats at table, thinks other people are just in TV, and he sleeps in wardrobe, from where he's aware of the visits of old Nick, the man with the code to the door, who comes at night and makes the bed creak, or brings a Sunday treat of food and the occasional toy. But Jack is getting bigger and more curious, and Ma is getting more desperate. She knows she has to do something. So together, they hatch a daring plan to leave room. But what does that mean to a little boy whose world is just a few metres square? Or his Ma, who had a life before any of this happened? The 2015 film of Room was nominated for two Oscars, including Best Adapted Screenplay for Emma Herself. And in fact, the movie of her 2016 novel, The Wonder, came out at the end of 2022. I spoke to her and started off with whether she was inspired to write Room first and foremost by the Fritzl case or by the horror of being trapped in a tiny space with young kids. I think only because I was a mother of two small children did I seize on the Fritzl case, thinking that there was something so deeply interesting about it because any child raised in that kind of 
bizarre, you know, locked room environment, would probably adore having his mother full time there at hand. And to any mother, it would be a nightmare. So the kind of combination heaven and hell of it, I thought, made a really interesting kind of parable almost. Because I heard you talking in an interview about how being a mother is already incredibly claustrophobic. <laughs> yes, my own mother, who had eight of us, and she loved it, you know, but she didn't choose to have eight. It was unfettered Irish Catholicism. So she used to tell a story about going into, you know, a public toilet and nipping into the cubicle and shutting the door. And she would see our hands coming under the door, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> monsters to get her. Um, so she could just never get away. It is claustrophobic and it's the most intense experience I've ever had. And I think for the child, it's equally intense, but in a way that is, I suppose, a little bit less fraught. So I just thought that telling a story from a child's point of view about a mother and child who are always together would be a fascinating combination of joys and horrors. And actually, Varshini has a question about that, about, you know, the voice. Obviously, it's all told through Jack's voice. Was that always your intention? Was there ever an idea that you might switch to Ma's voice at, at some point or a third party narrator? It was not only always my intention, Graham, but I think it is the whole idea of the book because we've all read uh, so many books about, you know, captured girls and, the, you know, the position of the victim of a crime who knows that it's a crime. It's a very almost generic one in fiction. I thought what would be extraordinary is if I was telling this story from the point of view of someone who doesn't believe there's any problem, who doesn't see any problem. Um, so the child's point of view, I thought, would be a kind of a barrier between us and the worst of the terror and could be full of originality and, and quirks because kids see things so fresh. And they're, they're so good at taking for granted um, the circumstances they live in, whatever those circumstances are. I remember looking at my son Finn at, at four and five and thinking, you could bring him to Mars and he would just very quickly get used to the space suits and the, you know, reconstituted potato dust and so on. Um, they're just astonishingly adaptable in a way that adults really aren't. So, yeah, I thought the child's voice was absolutely crucial. And the structure of the book I find fascinating because the kind of, I think the reader's expectation is that the arc will be, you know, they're in the room, they get put in the room, they're living in the room uh, and they get, you know, they escape the end. Did you always know that it was going to be a game of two halves, that that much of the book was going to be uh, post-rescue? Yes, I did. That's one of the insights I had right at the start. I knew what the title would be. I knew the point of view and I knew it would start with his birthday and I knew that the escape would be halfway through, which I agree startled some readers of the book and, and viewers of the film. But to me, if you have an end when they're rescued, first of all, it's too simplistic. It's like, oh, our world is a happy ending in itself. Um, and also it, in a way, it gives too much respect to the crime. It says that the whole story of Jack's life is framed by the crime of the kidnapping. And I, I didn't want the crime to, to loom that large. So for me, the second half of the book makes the whole thing much more interesting. And how important was it that they escape rather than get rescued? Was that, again, something you always knew that was going to happen? That's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that, but you're, you're dead right, Graham. If a SWAT team suddenly barged through the wall, that might have interesting effects, but it would not have come out of their character. And, you know, plot that grows out of character, it may not be how real life works, but it's deeply satisfying. If you can give your five-year-old protagonist in particular some kind of agency, I mean, yes, it's basically Ma who decides it should happen, but that's in response to Jack's growing curiosity and logic and that kind of, you know, energy of his growing up and the fact that he's, he's getting too big, he's too restless, he's asking too many questions. So 
in a way, the fact that they escape, it makes it into a coming of age story. So the whole thing then has kind of a, a forward momentum narratively, which is far more pleasing than if they were just rescued. A couple more questions from Varshini. She wonders, when you pitched this story to your uh, publishers, your editor, was there any resistance to this idea or did they lap it up? They lapped it up. I, I was almost frightened by the enthusiasm of their reaction. I myself think it sounds like a bizarre story. If I ever explained it to somebody in an elevator or something, I think I sound like a mad woman. (laughs) But my publishers just sensed that there was something universal in this story, which many people would be drawn to. Um, We actually considered aiming it at young adults because we thought young readers would really like it. But then my publishers said to me, look, if we if we aim it at adults, the teenagers will find it, too. And so now it's it's a set text on the leaving cert in Ireland. I'm just so touched by that. Wow. And uh, and I love the story of the screenplay. So you obviously were buoyed up by the response. You thought this is going to be a big, splashy book. And so you just went ahead. Is this true? You just went ahead on spec and wrote the screenplay. Yes, but not so much in the spirit of, of huge confidence, but more like they're never going to let me do this. And so I will try and get in early and draft a script before anyone can stop me. I had a sense already that they were going to come along and say, let's make a film of this. And I thought I could be like, ta-da, here's a script. If it's any good, let's use this. I wasn't absolutely convinced that it would be any good, but I thought I might as well have a bash. And I really had a sense that while fiction is full of men and women equally, or there may even be more women fiction writers, screenplay writing seemed to be a very specialist art, mostly done by a the same tiny handful of men. I got a stack of about 20 books on screenwriting from the library. And yeah, I tried a draft and before the novel was even published. And you've having great success now again with, with The Wonder. Like, is it a skill you enjoy? Do you like adapting your books? I love it. And I, I like screenwriting in general. I have, um, I've worked on projects adapting other people's work too. I love that too. It's almost like you can climb into somebody else's novel and see how it was made, you know. And um, I'd be happy to do original screenwriting. Yeah, I enjoy it as much as I enjoy writing for theatre or radio drama or fiction. They all have their own kind of special uh, qualities as art. Uh, there's some questions we ask uh, all our authors. So let's get to those. Uh, the first one is the book that turned you on to reading and what were you as a child? Were you a bookworm or did it come to you later in life? Absolute bookworm. And the book that turned me on was not one I read myself. It was one that my babysitter, who was a, a spoiled priest, you know, a man who was meant to be a priest and then dropped uh-huh. out. He uh, was a wonderful babysitter and he read me the entire Narnia cycle. So, you know, reading to children can have a hugely boosting effect on their own reading because, you know, it's the gateway drug. They discover a long, complex text and they're like, how do I get the skill to put more stories in my head? So, yes, it was definitely the Narnia books um, that that started me off. Uh, The next book I want to know about is uh, a book that you think not enough people know about, one that's slightly, you know, passed onto the radar. You know, it's ridiculous. Something that occurs to me is one that won the Pulitzer. So clearly it it did get a lot of attention, but I don't think people talk enough about it now. Um, It's Jane Smiley's novel, A Thousand Acres, I think is an absolute stunner. It's a kind of a replay of King Lear, but on a farm in, I think, Iowa. And it's a a stunning, dysfunctional family drama about this this father dividing up his, his huge farm between three sisters and how it all goes horribly wrong. So I think it's got a wonderful combination of, you know, the, the nitty gritties of, of dysfunctional family life and then this kind of epic structure of the, the replay of King Lear. So that's one I think everybody should read. Well, now, A Thousand Acres might be the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Is there a book that you wish you'd written that you're just jealous of how good it is? 
Oh, so many, so many. In fact, that's how I really know if a book is good when I start to feel myself, you know, getting gnarly with jealousy. (laughs) For instance, Sarah Waters' novel Affinity. It's not one of her better known ones, but it's so brilliantly written because without spoilers here, I'll just say that the characters in the novel get fundamentally tricked and, and deceived and thrown by something. And the readers of the novel, exactly the same thing happens to them. Basically, you, you well, unless you're much cleverer than me, you don't guess the ending because you've overlooked something and you've overlooked somebody. And so the novel really um, makes you complicit in the failings of the characters and really involves you in the same kind of, you know, deep trick that the, that the characters suffer. So, um, yeah, she's just such a brilliant writer. Emma Donoghue talking about her respect for Sarah Waters' affinity as well as her own smash hit title, Room. And if you're inspired to read more of her work, then her most recent book, Haven, is the story of three 7th century monks who set out to found a monastery on an island one of them has seen in a dream. Comparisons to Room have been made, but it is Excellent. Uh, So, Alex, uh, given the current state of the world might be making us feel like staying at home permanently, how have writers helped us deal with hard times in the past? Well, it is one of their sort of favourite topics. I must just say I was so delighted to hear Emma Donoghue talking about Jane Smiley. A Thousand Acres is a wonderful book and could very much fit into this theme, as could her Last Hundred Years trilogy. But she's just an amazing writer. I heartily recommend her. However, I think I might go... if you're agreeable to this, in chronological order. So I'm going back to 1855 in the first instance and Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens, uh, which is one of my absolute favourite Dickenses. And that might be because I think I did this for A-level. So you know that way it gets sort of etched into your mind and you can you can remember everything. Yes. Uh, of course, that could cause some people to never want to look at it again, but I think it's a wonderful novel which begins really in the Marshalsea, the debtor's prison, where little Dorrit has to go and visit her imprisoned father and then broadens out to this wild sort of panoramic picture, which includes now, don't ask me why I was put in mind of this sort of thing, uh, but it includes a portrait of the man of the age, Mr Myrtle, who is a, a financier and London hangs on his every word and schemes all his schemes are heavily invested in and then all funnily enough they go bust so it is a a marvelous picture of a sort of boom and bust society very good and our next one our next one takes us right up to 1939 it's john steinbeck's grapes of wrath part of his california series of novels that included of mice and men and interestingly this was actually inspired by a newspaper series that he wrote called the harvest gypsies which was illustrated by the photographer dorothea lang whose portraits of the great Beautiful, depression yeah. are you know, incredibly well known uh, and then it became this novel it came from that idea broadened out to make this epic novel of the Jodes and their battle during the Great Depression. And it's something, again, I read when I was really quite young, a teenager or early 20s, and has always stayed with me. And it is a a sort of humane portrait of what this intense experience of poverty and instability does to this family. It's absolutely wonderful. And how does John Steinbeck make it kind of palatable, not just grim? Where's the pleasure in reading it? Well, I think it's partly because you really follow the the characters. So there's a patriarch and matriarch, and then there are these 
these kids. And and I remember uh, reading first the, the character Rose of Sharon, who is a young girl when we first meet her and eventually becomes an adult. And uh, people like Jim Casey, a preacher who's lost his faith and who was based on a great friend of Steinbeck's who heavily influenced his work. So he makes it about the people. And it is a realist novel. It's told in sort of unsparingly realistic and often, as, as you intimate, grim sort of detail. But you care so much about these people that you commit fully to the story. All right, third choice, how up to date are we going? We're going really up to date. We're going up to right now and we're going up to a debut novel called The Rabbit Hutch by Tess Gunty. So this is about a low income housing community in Indiana and it's The Rabbit Hutch of the title. Uh, And the book is a sort of, again, one of those portraits of community that is very heavy on the people. She herself came from the Midwest, left it and wrote most of the ideas for the book when she was sitting in a Brooklyn park, having left it. You know, part of that thing that that writers often get when they've left something behind, the the pictures of it vividly implant in their mind and they sort of, in a way, start to kind of recreate it. And I think what she was most concerned with was the fact that Rust Belt fiction, as it's called, that that kind of idea of stuff that's, you know, not coastal America, not metropolitan America, but the big space in between, uh, was often portrayed in a very kind of non-diverse way, as if it's all full of a certain kind of person. So this is peopled with many, many different characters. It's a wonderful book. And I guess her own success is kind of the happy <laughs> happy ending yeah well it is again it's a sort of testament to this idea that you don't you know being living in a certain place experiencing a certain kind of upbringing and milieu should not and need not and does not confine you thank you very much for those alex uh if you've been to cabin fever to note down the books we've been talking about just visit the amazon or audible website search for the graham norton book club and you'll find our web page with all of the titles we've mentioned It's time to go into room. Here to do that are the mastermind behind the Bradford Literary Festival, Saima Aslam, MBE. Hello. That's a good introduction. (laughs) It is a good... I should start using that. Former teacher, now social worker and timeline maker, Gavern Bennett. How ya? Hello. And our big bosses, Gavern, are concerned that if people have not heard this podcast before, they'll go, what the hell uh, are timelines? So what's your very quick Mm. description of what you do? Okay, so I take highly complex subjects and I reduce them to a small red pill, which is 25 entries. Then I add some images to it and then I add a few academics And I've done them for The Guardian, the British Library now, the British Museum, ITV recently. So you have an image and then you normally have three sentences because I've got like a three sentence rule. Okay. (laughs) And just look at the images to understand what it is. Or you can just read the actual text. Excellent. PhD candidate, lecturer, and Instagram book reviewer, Gabby Humphreys. Welcome along. Hello again. Yes, hello, miss. <laughs> oh. And junior doctor and library enthusiast, Varshini Vijaykumar, who chose room for us. So we'll start with you, uh, Varshini. What was it about this book that appealed, that made you think uh, we should all read it? So I actually read this book for the first time after I saw the film. It's a really difficult topic but I think it's a really interesting take on a horrible situation these two characters find themselves in 
And I also thought it'd be a fun one to do for the book club because the narration is quite interesting and quite particular. <laughs> and I think people will have got on with it differently. So I'm excited to hear what everyone thinks. All right. Well, Gabby, you had a particular experience with this book. So I think you went with the audiobook, didn't you? I went with the audiobook and uh, it, it was well produced, but I regretted it hugely because <laughs> I was meant to feel sorry for a child that was just a bit of a pain. <laughs> he was so, <laughs> so annoying to listen to. So what, did they use a child's voice or how does, how does the audiobook work? It was an adult putting on the voice of a child for ten and a half hours. Oh. Wow. Yeah, yeah, see, <laughs> I regret not just reading it. Uh, Gavern, how did you get on with Room? I had a similar experience to Gabby, but I did it the other way around. I read the book first, and then I listened to the Audible, and I'm glad I read the book first, but what I found is mm. the first half I was captivated. Mm. I was terrified, right, because it's like a, it's mm. a child... And it's like, I thought, what's going to happen here now? All right. But the second half of the book, I just, I, it's very clever what the author did, I think. Because in the second half, it's like they've gone into a bigger kind of room. So I thought, this is really clever. But when, in listening to the author speaking about it, I really got into it more. And actually, I, re- I talked myself into liking it more. Oh, oh, that's good. You've talked oh. yourself down. Well yeah. done. <laughs> <laughs> and Saima, had you come across this book before? Had you, had you read it previous to this? No, I hadn't. I had actually seen a tiny clip of the film. I'd walked into the room, seen the tiny clip and walked straight out again because I was like, I don't want to watch this. And I have to say, when I picked the book up and realised what the book was, I was like, oh no, I don't want to read this. (laughs) I had to really gird myself up into reading it. And I don't know, I just found the whole thing a bit traumatic. I don't know whether it's because I have a 19-year-old and Ma's 19 when all of this Mm. happens, but the the whole idea of what was going on... I think when you first start reading it, it's, you know, it's that child's voice and it's the narration, so it doesn't feel quite so awful. I have to say, I found the whole book really, really hard. Even with the second half, I was just a bit like, I don't want to know about this. And the, the sort of strange structure of the book, Alex, did you find that surprising, satisfying? Well, I, one of the things I think is remembering back to the when I very first read it, it is one of those books that you will sit down and read in one or two sittings because it's kind of so propulsive. And I think when you get to the point where you think there's a happy ending, you're kind of like, well, what could possibly, you know, that they're out, they're free. And so much of the dramatic tension is clenched in you waiting for that moment that when it happens, you're kind of shocked you have to recalibrate really and I found that very surprising and again very propulsive you suddenly thought oh no we need to think now about what would actually happen after this terrible plight has been resolved and so uh, Gavern and Saima you are our parents in the group that idea of how claustrophobic it is to be a parent did you did you get that did that ring true I I think that's why I found it hard to read it because the the first half (laughs) I was like, don't go to certain places because I can't cope. It's like a horror novel, actually. I, I wonder if it's going to go supernatural. It's a guy called Old Nick in the background. So there's like an allusion to the devil there, literally. And I, I, as a parent, I was like, because you want to protect your children, right? And it's like the ultimate powerless situation, this. And what about you, Simon? That that idea of like, you, the way children demand all of your time. Yeah. And you know what? I have a very demanding child. <laughs> when I listened to Emma and she was talking about how she thought this was a great way to explore that relationship between a parent and a child. I was like, 
why? Why would you think that this is a really great way to explore that? <laughs> and let's go back to the idea of Jack as the narrator. Varshney, you thought it worked, the, the voice of the five-year-old throughout the book. I think so. I didn't listen to the audiobook. I read it as a book. At first, it takes a while to get used to. I remember opening it up and being like, okay. I should say I don't have kids. I have worked with kids before as a doctor and just otherwise in general. And I do think there's a lot of like a child's lack of self-awareness almost that is really charming in the book and just children getting on with things quite cheerfully, like Emma says in her interview. And there's some really good bits, I think, later in the book when Ma and her mom are maybe having an emotional moment and Jax just goes off and plays with something because he doesn't really care. You're very reminded that this is a child story and it takes you away from, I think, the bigger story of the crimes that have happened, if that makes sense. And Gabby, was it a consistent voice for you? No, it was not. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually wrote a list down on my phone whilst listening, saying, <laughs> why does Jack not know what crying is? He would describe that as like leaking face, leaking eyes. Um, the same for when he had an accident. But then he knew the word for penis and he knew that the plural of hippopotamus was hippopotami. Like it was just... Such a weird blend. <laughs> I do agree about the crying. I do think it's weird that a four or five-year-old doesn't know what crying is. And it was a shame because some of my favourite books are from perspectives of, say, like, not humans. I love Clara and the Sun so much because of this detail of, say, calling a phone an oblong. But I feel like it's got to be consistent. And how do you think it sustains, Alex, using a five-year-old child as a narrator for the whole book? I think the truth is that we know that a five-year-old, this isn't actually their voice. This is not a five-year-old's voice. So yes, I think Emma Donoghue does a great job of it. I think that, you know, were we to actually go and try to get a five-year-old to tell us a whole novel, it wouldn't be the same. But that's okay because fiction's fiction. But do you not think the use of the child makes this incredibly dark story sort of palatable? Like, we were able to read it because we're, we're, we're seeing it through his eyes. Here's the thing. For some people, maybe, but I, I don't have a maternal bone in my body. And for me, <laughs> I quite like these dark crime books. And instead, you just, it was just read by somebody pretending to be a child. <laughs> It's <laughs> not what I needed. Because it was child's voice, I think it makes it light to start with. And then as other bits start coming in and you think, oh, my God, this is not light. This is really horrible. And actually, the very innocence of Jack against everything that's actually going on around him, actually, to me, it just highlighted it. It actually made it worse. I think it would be a really different book, as Emma said in her interview, if it was from Ma's perspective. I think something that's interesting, you were saying that you really like those, like, crime books Gabby I really don't but I think this goes into like the really like human details of the crime because I think you know it's it's a horrible event and it's a really traumatic thing that's being described but if something like that is going on for long enough it does become boring like everyone has to find a normal in their everyday situation even if it's a horrific one and I think it did such a good job of capturing what it was like in the everyday sense, and then describing how they recovered from that. Yeah, the second part with the recovery I found really interesting with Jack actually being upset that he was no longer stuck in a room. And it might be from a psychology background, but 
Of course, you're a lecturer in yeah, psychology. I know. I know. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> getting getting to actually see this child try and fit in in like normal world and with magazines saying that he runs like a monkey things like that I know that's actually happened in cases and it can really like impact development mm. so I found that half a lot more interesting because Gavern, where did you think the book was going when you were reading that first half and you you were it was a, it was like a thriller what did you think was going to happen I expected it to end with like a helicopter coming in and then dragging them out and everything. That didn't happen. So I like that. That's what I liked about the second half. It's just, okay, this is a little bit different and we're getting to see how things might work out. And I, I like the way, you know, the grandmother and the grandfather, the way people responded, because there's some truth in that. People would respond differently. You lost somebody, you think you've lost them, and then they come back. It's not true that everyone would be like hugging everybody and tears. Machini, it's a great book, all right? <laughs> But I feel it could have been a greater book if it just continued a bit more what it was doing at the beginning. And well, look, basically, if you haven't heard this podcast before, at the end of our discussion, we then like to ask people, marks out of 10, how likely they are to recommend it to a friend. Uh, so let's start with you, Gabby. Marks out of 10. Yeah, I'll, I'll go six. Yeah, just <laughs> just don't listen to it. Fair enough. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Uh, Gavern, how many uh, points are you going to get? Okay, so I started with a five, but after wrestling with myself and talking and thinking it through, I think it's definitely a seven. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. If we come back in a week, it'll be a ten. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Simon, what are you giving it? Oh, this is really hard because I don't think I would recommend it to anyone just because I just found it really traumatic. Having said that, I mean, my daughter's really into, like, all this true crime stuff, and I think if people are into that, they'd probably really love it. So... I'm going to give it a five because I think there are people I would recommend it to if they're into that type of thing. Has your daughter read it? No, but she's watched the film. Okay, and she survived. She survived, yeah. She <laughs> lo- like I said, she loves stuff like that, but she's not a parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Varjani, how many marks are you giving it? Ooh, I am going to give it a nine. I think I would say if you really can't stand the child's voice in it, the film is a really good alternative because it has all the same plot points and Emma obviously wrote the screenplay. And they use a real child. And they use a real child. <laughs> okay, well, all that remains is to find out what we're going to be reading next week. And I think, Gavern, you're doing the picking. Yes. So yes. Uh, what and why? Right, so we'll be talking about Memory Man by David Baldacci, in which you're introduced to the almighty Amos Decker, who's the detective to end all detectives. Oh, wow. And the wonderful thing is the start of a series... If you can read this one, you've got another series of books to, to get onto. Oh, wow. So it's a, it's a good intro. It's a good yeah. intro. That is Memory Man by <laughs> David Waldacci. And thank you very much, Clubbers, for talking about Emma Donoghue's Room. And I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 And now, here's a question for you. How many among us know even roughly where the spleen is or what it does or the difference between tendons and ligaments? Or what our lymph nodes are up to? How many times a day do you suppose you blink? Five hundred? A thousand? You've no idea, of course. Well, you blink 14,000 times a day. So many that your eyes are shut for 23 minutes of every waking day. Yet you never have to think about it. Because every second of every day, your body undertakes a literally unquantifiable number of tasks. A quadrillion. A nonillion. A quindecillion. A vigintillion. These are actual measures, at all events some number vastly beyond imagining. 
Bill Bryson became well-known for his best-selling and exceptionally funny travel books in the 80s and 90s, titles like The Lost Continent about America, Notes from a Small Island about the UK, and Neither Here Nor There on his travels around Europe. He then turned his attention to a whole range of topics, from the English language in mother tongue, science in A Brief History of Nearly Everything, Shakespeare, the home, and the human body. Most recently, he came out of retirement to unravel the secret history of Christmas as an audiobook, which meant, of course, that we had to speak to him about it, starting off with how he's enjoying having hung up his keyboard. I love being retired, and I can't wait to return to being retired. <laughs> after the, but I have to say, I mean, they made a very tempting offer, and, and when I thought about the subject, that actually is quite interesting, and so I kind of just temporarily came out of retirement as an experiment. Really, really enjoyed doing it. But also, it made me realize that what I really, really enjoy is being retired. So I, I'm happy to have done this, but now I want to go back to being retired and sleeping and drinking and, and gardening and not having to do anything that involves thinking or working. Uh, but now we're here to talk about audiobooks. And I, I'm struck that, you know, you grew up with parents who worked in, in journalism. You know, when you started, the word was enough. The word was on the page and it did all the work. Does it frustrate you now that audiences want your voice as well? I don't know if it frustrates me. I understand it. I'm a big podcast listener, uh, you know, because I spend a lot of my time out in the garden now. And rather than just sort of mindlessly raking leaves or whatever, I can listen to books and podcasts and things. And I do understand why people would like to hear the author himself doing the reading. Although I have to say, I think an awful lot of authors, and I would include myself, are not particularly good readers of books. And the reason that I ended up starting to read my own books was because the publishers asked me to. I mean, they said that they much preferred it when authors read their own books. And I found I enjoyed doing it in a strange way, because it's really hard work. I mean, it's also kind of a treat to go to a studio and you know, for a week or so have like a job, you know, that I commuted to. And it was for somebody like me, a writer whose life is mostly solitary, uh, it, was, it was really nice to kind of go to an office and, and you know, have lunch with people and that, and that kind of thing. I, I did enjoy that side of it. And prior to that, did you enjoy doing sort of um, author events? Because, you know, so much of your writing is funny. So d do, do you like <laughs> reading it out loud in front of an audience? It's a really interesting experience. And what you find is that stuff that I thought was really great, you get up in front of an audience to read it and, and they, you know, it goes flat. And the other things that you thought were really lame and you're almost embarrassed to read <laughs> in public are the ones that get big laughs. And you also find that things that work well on the page that, are, you know, when people reading them silently don't necessarily work so well when they're read out loud. So you learn a lot about what works and what doesn't work by, by dealing with an audience. And when you're doing the audiobook, is the text sacred or do you mix it up a bit when you're reading it aloud? No, no, I, ch I change stuff all the time. I mean, I, I edit it a lot. For the very reason I was just saying, that sometimes you realize this is a really hard sentence to read, and it's got too much information for somebody to take in through their ears. And also, you just, as you're going through it, you just think, this just doesn't work. This is, you know, I don't know why I use that word here, because there's another word that works even better. So uh, part of the reason I've always enjoyed doing my own readings is because you, it's a last chance to kind of manipulate the material and try and improve it. 
And it strikes me that your books, you know, the, the, writing them is only part of the job. You know, your books are so researched. You go away and you find out all these amazing things about whatever it be, the body, the English language, or now Christmas. Do you still do that? Do you still have that mind? Are you still kind of, you know, do, do things get in your head and you kind of go, oh, I must figure that out? That's a really, really good question because uh, one of the things I worried about was I, wouldn't, I knew I wouldn't miss writing at all. Writing's hard work. But the research I loved, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do with myself in retirement. And so I continued to collect information on lots and lots of different topics, as if I may one day get back and write another book. One of the hardest things I found, in a strange way, was as soon as I retired and I didn't have a project on, which was the first time in decades, was that I didn't have any reading imposed on me. I could read whatever I wanted for pleasure. And I tried reading some novels and things like that. And I did enjoy it, but I also felt slightly pointless because it didn't have an outcome that, that I was aiming for. And so now I, I continue to read on subjects that are of interest to me as if I might one day write a book on them, but I know I'm never going to. Uh, okay, look, let's talk about books. Uh, we, we ask everyone on the podcast some questions. Uh, the book that turned you on to reading, and judging by your, your parents, your lineage of journalists, presumably it was a house full of books. Yeah, there was. My dad had a lot of middle-brow books. He had belonged to the Book of the Month Club, and every month you would be sent a book. And I remember one of the great delights for me when I was like 12 years old was discovering all these hardback books that were on the bookshelves in our living room. And I would take books down off the shelves, not knowing whether they were classics or, you know, had no idea what a lot of these books were. And the particular book that I always remember that really really enchanted me, got me into reading, was a book called Lost Horizon by James Hilton, which is the book that gave the world Shangri-La. And it's all about a group of people that are sort of end up in this kind of paradisical valley in the Himalayas. One summer evening, I just stayed up all night reading it, and I was absolutely smitten with it. I reread it again not long ago, and it wasn't nearly as good an experience as I recalled. Perhaps sometimes better not to go back and reread the books that were really influential to you when you were 13 or 14 years old. But it was the book that got me for life as a reader. But also, I think it's rare that there's such a direct line between a book that you loved and something you ended up doing. You know, that you ended up traveling and going to kind of out of the way places and all of that. Well, possibly, yeah. It, I mean, I was always a sucker for the big wide world. I mean, grow up in Iowa and you really want to go out and see something <laughs> different than cornfields. And what I very clearly remember from my early life was my father also subscribed to National Geographic. And every month we would get these magazines that showed all the world as this technicolor place where it didn't matter whether it was France or Burma or you know, Senegal, that every place just looked more kind of vibrant and alive and rich than what I saw outside my own window. Yeah. And and that filled me with this, this really intense desire to go out and see the world. And the next book we want to hear about is one that you might turn to in difficult times. Is there a book you turn to for comfort? No, it, it, partly because I, I, I don't have difficult times. I've had the luckiest life of anybody who's ever lived. I mean, I've never had anything really bad that that needed some sort of comfort but um, to me a difficult time is like just you know not being able to find a, a parking space at weight rows and, <laughs> and and that's not an occasion when which i would turn to a book no. you know i would I'd just drive around and around cursing and i honestly don't have a book that i would 
think of as, you know, a comfort. Okay, fair enough. No, good. No, Graham. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Finally, uh, a book you'd recommend to lots of people because you feel like lots of people don't know about it. Yeah, it leaps to mind because I'm reading it at the moment and it's a book called And Finally by Henry Marsh, who's an English neurosurgeon. He writes really, really well about being a neurosurgeon. But this particular book is about he's, he has prostate cancer, which sounds pretty gloomy and it seemingly is a fatal. Uh, and actually, I mean, the book is not a barrel of laughs, but it's also really quite moving and fascinating. I mean, here is a person who's a, a doctor and obviously very, very qualified to understand what's happening to him. But at the same time, he's a patient for the first time in his life. And he's seen medicine and practice of medicine from a completely different perspective now and writes about it very very well bill bryson for whom times have never been hard talking to us about audiobooks and some of his other enthusiasms it is nearly time to close up this particular room but before we go i hear the creaking of a door and yes it is audiobook insider and chart maven holly newson is here to tell us more about her vital statistics holly what do we need to know so as not to sound like we've been locked up for several years what's up what's up (laughs) i'm actually wondering if being locked up would be quite good for book consumption maybe maybe (laughs) i don't know um so there is nowhere else we can go first than here it's just come out it's only january And I think it's going to be one of the biggest books of the year. It's Spare by Prince Harry. Ah, Of course it is. Um, (laughs) And doesn't it just have one of the best book titles ever? It's so clever. Yeah, so good. So this is topping the most sold non-fiction book charts. It's top of the audiobook charts and it has been right up there since it went up for pre-order in the autumn. Um, I feel like this is going to be one of those books that really transcends the people who like books audience. I mean, the whole country knows it exists. So I don't think it'll be going anywhere anytime soon. So do you think this will be kind of a Michelle Obama moment? This book will sell and sell for a long time. I really do, because I think anyone who didn't pick it up straight away, you know, they're going to hear little bits coming out in the news in coming weeks and months. Yeah, I just think it'll be something that everyone's read at some point. Well, you never know. He might even show up in the book club talking about the audiobook. You know, he might. He might. (laughs) Uh, If we can see past Spare, what else might we be noticing? I think we should keep an eye on The Island of Missing Trees by Elif Shafak. This was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, uh, the Costa Novel Award in 2021, and it was a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. Ah, Reese. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, she, um, she knows. It's like this kind of continuing growing tide. Um, it's been high up in the audiobook charts and in the overall bestsellers. And it's a tearjerker of a story set in 1970s Cyprus, which follows love and family with a backdrop of turmoil and war. Yeah, I'm out. Uh, Okay, (laughs) it's possible we might need a little something to cheer us up. Anything to suggest? Uh, Yeah, we'll end with some fantasy. Book seven of Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn series, and it's called The Lost Metal. This came out November 2022, and it went straight up the science fiction and fantasy charts, and it's doing well in the audiobook charts too. Um, But in case anyone hasn't heard of Brandon Sanderson, he writes these epic fantasy worlds. And he was asked by Robert Jordan, who's the author of The Wheel of Time, to finish that series after Robert's death. 
Wow. So that's how much fantasy lovers and writers really rate him. Um, he's basically like fantasy royalty at this point. Um, and the people also love a long audiobook, which Brandon Sanderson always provides. Um, this one is just under 19 hours. Wow. <laughs> that is a lot of listening. Uh, thank you very much indeed, yeah. Holly. And don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible, and all the information you need will be right there. Our clubbers have gone off to look at Simon's corgi photos, so it just remains for me to thank our own Ma for getting us through our first outing into the world for a while. Thank you very much, Alex. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm not sure about that new nickname, though. Don't put it on the T-shirt. <laughs> no, I won't. I won't. Uh, go, go pack a bag cleverly. <laughs> yes, I will do. Perfect. All right. Uh, please join us next time when, amongst other things, we'll be talking about Gavern's choice of Memory Man and former Blue Peter presenter Connie Huck will be telling us about her fearless fairy tales. I feel a handsome prince coming on. Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Why just walk the dog when you could? Tiptoe around a Transylvanian castle, avoiding the watchful eyes of Count Dracula. Then dodge the footfall of a towering Brachiosaurus in a grown-up guide to dinosaurs. <laughs> or try titting about with French and Saunders. Before dozing off in a rainforest rope hammock to sleep sound with Jamie Dornan. For stories you won't hear anywhere else, visit Audible, the home of storytelling. Subscription required. See audible.co.uk for terms.